It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, here's your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Welcome back to Preachers on Preaching. Thanks for listening. If you know of a preacher that you'd like to hear interviewed on this program, please email me. We want to be speaking to as diverse a group of preachers as we can possibly find. You can reach me at preachers at christiancentury.org via email or on the Christian Century website. You can find my contact info there also. That's christiancentury.org. This week, I speak with Trey Hall. You'll hear Trey is very open in his answers to my questions, and one of the reasons I think that might have been the case is because shortly after our interview, Trey announced that he was leaving Urban Village Church, where he served for a number of years and is one of the pastors who started that church, which is a remarkable place here in the city of Chicago, an absolute success story in the world of mainline new church starts. Trey's moving back to England, where his husband is from, and he'll be working as an urban church strategist for the epicenter group there. So I think that there's some poignancy here in this interview as Trey readies himself to say goodbye to Urban Village Church and to the city of Chicago, even though when we spoke he hadn't yet made that announcement. I'm sure it must have been on his heart and on his mind, resulting, I think, in a beautifully open conversation. We begin with Trey preaching a sermon from back in December of 2014 in Advent, and he's telling the story of being a young boy sneaking out on the carport of his parents' home, looking up into the midnight sky, laying on the roof of the carport, looking up at the midnight sky, thinking about and being overwhelmed by the grandeur of the universe and his small place in it. Here he is, Trey Hall. When I was a kid, my bedroom window opened onto the flat roof of our carport. And uh, many nights I would climb out there. My parents had told me exactly not to, to do not that. Don't go out on the roof, it's dangerous. But um, I still did it. I would open the window and I knew the path along the shingles that creaked the least, that they would hear the least when they were downstairs. And I would go out to the part of the carport roof that would give me the best um, unobstructed view of the night sky. And I would just lay there on the carport roof and stare into the atmosphere, stare into the dark. We lived then uh, on what was then the edge of the country, and so there weren't that many street lamps, there weren't that many city lights, and so it was just me and like canopies and canopies of stars. You've been there. You live in Chicago, so you haven't seen it in a long time, but you've been there, right? Canopies and canopies of stars. And sometimes it was just me and the stars and my prayers, and sometimes unaware that I was up on the carport roof, my dad would be in the carport pacing, chain-smoking his cigarettes, and trying to figure out how he's going to make his life work, how he's going to pay his bills. And the clouds of his tobacco smoke would rise up into the heavens with my prayers. I say prayers. I wasn't a religious kid. My parents didn't really take us to church, and so my prayers were probably more wonderings than prayers. Sometimes I would try to identify the constellations I had learned about in science class. Sometimes I would search for the planet Mars or Saturn. Sometimes I would hope against hope. Always I would hope against hope for an alien spaceship, <laughs> which I never saw, but I'm still open to. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> but now looking back at my younger self, and my younger selves actually, because this happened from like eight to 17, I can see how spiritual all that activity was. 
I can see how spiritually curious I was as a, as a boy and then a preteen and then as a teenager and as a young man. And how all those night investigations were in a sense prayer. They were reaching out to God. They were stretching myself, some attempt to stretch toward God, my life toward God. You know what I'm talking about, right? Just that, just that feeling, right? You know it. Maybe it's in Michigan or maybe it's in Chicago during a, a blackout, right? You know that feeling when it's just like the subjective, ugh of you and the immense blackness of the night. You know that feeling, like how that alone can be a monastery? It is, it's a monastery. And I can remember feeling connected to it all, lying there on my roof, and I can feel like I wanted to be, I was, I wanted to be connected to it, and I was connected to it, and I wanted to be connected to it more. And I remember my mom, um, for Christmas one year when I was 10, she had a wool hat knitted for me, um, and it had my name knitted into it. Um, not just once, but 10 times. <laughs> my name was knitted into the cap around the crown of my head. Tray, 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 10 times. I have the hat. <laughs> um, she found it in the basement a couple years ago and sent it to me. Um, and uh, so I, I've been wearing it. Um, <laughs> I wear this around Wicker Park, and people are like, that's a great hat. <laughs> and yes, my head as a 10-year-old was already this big. Um, I had a huge head coming out of my uh, mom. And my, body, my, body, my body is not yet caught up. But I remember, uh, it still hasn't. And I remember I would crawl, seriously, I'd crawl out onto the roof in Memphis in the wintertime. And I'd put this hat on. And like... I remember, not every night, but like putting it on as like a deliberate and conscious radio signal into the universe. Like, Trey, 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 Trey. Like transmitting myself out into the galaxies. Like, here I am too, on this roof. Hey, in the outskirts of Memphis, here I am. I want to be part of this. I want to be part of this. I want... I see you, Orion, and I want to be part of this. I see you, Rings of Saturn, and I want to play. God, whoever you are, I am here. So radioing my tray, 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 tray out into the universe. Not in an arrogant way, right? Not mostly in an arrogant way. But in this desire to be enveloped and part of this like immense thing that was so beautiful and so grand and so immense that like I, I couldn't take it in then and I still can't take it in now. Trey Hall, welcome to Preachers on Preaching. It's good to be here. Very glad that you're able to speak with me today. Let's start by talking about some of the things that you said in that piece from that wonderful sermon. So that can you contextualize that for us? Yeah, it was a sermon in Advent, and um, we were talking, the, the sermon series was on, uh, we were following Barbara Brown Taylor's book uh, on um, walking, learning to walk in the dark. And so the, the text was from Luke 2. We were sort of taking Luke 2 and treating it three or four ways in Advent. And so this was the, the, the Sunday we were talking about the angels and the glory of God and the shepherds looking up and seeing um, the radiant presence. Um, so it was like, I guess, second or third Sunday of Advent uh, of 2014. And did, did you write that out? It's a beautiful piece of writing. One of the things I wanted to ask you about it was 
as compared to another sermon of yours that I listened to that sounded far more extemporaneous, that felt like prose that was being read. Was that something that you had... Yeah, when I tell stories, I often will write them out word for word and work really hard. That's the part, maybe the part of the sermons that I work the most um, uh, carefully on is the turn of phrase in a story. So I would have worked on that for a couple hours and then memorized it or internalized it so much so that I could, I could tell it without using a script or without, with minimal use of script. But it's very carefully crafted. You bet, yeah. I wish I could tell stories like that extemporaneously, but that's not my gift. What do you clearly? It, it clearly, and and in the sermon, it works as a literary device very nicely. The sermon goes on to be about the the tension between or the dynamic between our understanding of ourselves as being the center of the universe and our utter it's not insignificance, but but our utter how would you put it our uh, well, I'd say our smallness, yeah. um, but connectedness. So, so the the sermon begins with you talking about your feelings of awe mm. on top of the carport, and also you're saying your own name over and over and over again. And when I first heard that, it's a charming story about the hat that your mom made with your name in it so many times. Um, but I thought, well, this is interesting. He's really talking about himself a lot here. Um, and how, where is this going? So the way you wrap it up is to say, we understand ourselves as being very important. In the grand scheme of the universe, we're very small. But God loves us as if we were, because we are so important. Mm. Right? So there's like, and as a literary device, then you end the sermon with this wide open sense of the grandeur of God, the, the awesome power of God's glory and our smallness. Yet you begin with an expansive sense of the self, mm. which I thought that was very effective as a listener. Um, when you craft those pieces of writing, the stories that you tell, you're influenced by what you read, by other authors that you like to read. Oh yeah, I, these days I'm, I was thinking about this. I mean, I'm influenced mostly these days by um, contemplative mystics. Okay. Um, and so folks from um, Simeon the New Theologian, to Merton, to Richard Rohr, um, to Annie Dillard, you know, like folks like that. And so, um, so not just their writing, but the, my own uh, practice of contemplative prayer. So, which is all about, right, these themes of the self that is not finally true, which is the false self, but not bad self, yeah. which is the false self, but beneath that self, the false self, there is this true self, which is you, but it's actually Christ in you, but still in you, right? So this, these themes of so that's what they believe that beneath the false self, there is the true self, and that true self might be called the Christ self, the, the Christ, Christ self. You know, the Paul's thing in Galatians of I am no longer myself, I Christ, it, but Christ living in me. That sense, yeah. like it's Christ is still kind of in me, right? So there's this. Uh, um, Again, you're small but connected. Yeah, I've heard it talked about like the false self is essential. Number one, it will always be with you, right? The false self is another way of talking about the ego, the I, right? The I uh, that's not connected. Um, so it'll be with you until you die, and that's the only time the ego ever goes away is at death. Um, but it's essential, by my reading of psychodynamic theory, um, 
it's essential, particularly in the first half of life. And Richard Rohr talks a lot about this. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've in that falling upward book. Yeah. yeah. Have you read that? So yeah, he did. He treats, he treats the whole thing about you have to build a container at the beginning, build boundaries, uh, your foundation. That's the false self, not the bad self, but you got to have it. And then in the second half of life, or as we transition to that, um, there is the chance to sort of, you know, discover what's inside the container or move beyond the house or uh, break the rules you've learned so well in the first half of life. Do you feel, Rohr says there's typically some sort of like event or trauma or major life change that will cause one to recognize they're entering. Yeah. Uh, Are you in the second half of life? Do you feel yourself rounding that corner? Uh, I think I'm in transition. Yeah. In the past five to seven years, sort of the little little seeds of transition but I, d- I definitely agree with war with with um with roar about it's either he says either great great suffering or mm. or great love uh mm. that so, marks that change yeah for you. that sort of breaks it open have, have, as you feel yourself in that time of transition is it affecting your preaching you bet how so well i mean i feel more able to talk about myself be self-referential without being self-important in the traditional understanding of that phrase. So self-referential doesn't, it, sometimes that means like self-important, right? Like um, egotistical or up one's own ass, right? But self-referential can be uh, referring to one's self as failing and falling and um, uh, discovering. And so I, I use, I, that's, uh, I certainly, I do talk about myself so a lot So you can in use sermons. yourself more, more than you did more than I did ten years ago. I mean, I was I was trained in the late '90s, still with the uh, the traditional mainline homiletics guide of we don't talk about ourselves. We talk about the text. You know, the text is always the most important thing, and I, I think the text is the most important thing. But sort of, we never talk about our our own stuff. As if you weren't in it somehow. Right. Right. And yeah. as if God weren't incarnate in Jesus and therefore in us. You're right. right. <laughs> I've never been a, uh, a fierce Protestant in that way. I was know? talking to a friend of mine recently who is a very keen listener to sermons and, and, but also through his work winds up worshiping all over the place at different churches. And he said that he had been at a, at a church and he was very impressed with the sermon. It was a Presbyterian church. And that he felt, the, and the preacher was about like, like late 40s, early 50s, and he said that it was clear that the preacher was so tired of talking about himself <laughs> that he had stripped in the sermon all, all, like, all it, references, all to, the references self? to the self. And it was this obje- sort of a, a set of objective um, you know, claims. And my friend really liked the sermon a lot, but he said it was odd that it was as if anyone could have preached it. Um, Did it feel to your friend like it was, um, like he was tired of talking about himself like in a healthy way? Like he he had gotten to a point in his life where he, he just didn't need to talk about himself anymore? That's what he was saying, which made me wonder, it's sort of the opposite of what you're describing. And I've, I've found for myself that there's truth to to both of those. I, I trot out boatloads of examples from my own past and things I see now, today. In, in sermons as you know bridge pieces and sure. and as sometimes the heart of what I'm trying to 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 use to point people toward God um, and not only have I begun to run out of material <laughs> but also I do sometimes feel like I'm, I'm tired of hearing about myself 
But at the same time, that's all I have, you know? Yeah. Oh, I do. I don't know. I, it'll be so interesting. I've stopped predicting how I'll preach in five years. But I, mm. I do think you asked if I'm am I in the first or second half. And I, I think I'm probably in transition. So yeah. if I keep uh, awake to God, maybe in 10 years, I'll be speaking, preaching sermons that are devoid of, uh, of subjective personal experience, too. Who knows? I, mean, I hope not. You I hope use not. it so well. Well, thanks. Yeah. I, I am comforted in that. This is probably like my own justification, but um, I'm really in love with the Apostle Paul, and he talks about himself so, so much. Like, he just always refers to himself, and I used to think, that's the most egotistical thing in the world. And there's, I think part of that is probably true, but I think he's on to something about this is about the transformation of the individual as well as the transformation of, of the cosmos. And Absolutely. So, and, and, and our role, Bart says this so well, is, is to point beyond ourselves, to point toward mm. the cross. But at the same time, as you were just suggesting, we are ourselves caught up in the transformational event that we're witnessing to. And so to pretend otherwise... Sure. starts to feel inauthentic. Even as the flip side of that, it can get too solipsistic, which again is one of the reasons that, that I was so impressed with that sermon. I thought it embodied that tension really, really nicely. Well, thanks. I think that's, I mean, that's certainly the fruit of reading a lot of mystics and practicing a lot of mystical stuff. How do you reconcile, I'm going to push into this a little bit. Hmm. How do you reconcile the notion that Christ is indwelling in us, if I understand that, with um, historical Protestant emphases on our utter deprivation, you know, our utter degradation, <laughs> well, our, our total I'm depravity? A, I'm not a continental Protestant like you. Okay. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Methodist. So we have this queer uh, middle way. So we came from the Anglicans, which was essentially right, a Catholic tradition. So our theology is actually... Um, kissing cousins to Catholicism in a way, in a closer way than it is to like so continental reformation. So we've Methodists have never been about utter depravity. Um, we, we don't, it's not in our lexicon. Um, so I, I, I noticed that I sense that you're a, um, a fan of Bart. Oh, I like Bart. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah. I do too. But, um, uh, Wesley Methodists would be less, um, I don't, I don't know, less, uh, less worried about categorical differences um, between God and humanity. So when you preach then, if you think about how God is revealing God's self to us, as you are well aware, um, those two distinctions between natural revelation and the special revelation in Christ. If you typically, I think, adherent to Calvin, Luther, those theologies would hold that and certainly Bart does, that our apprehension of natural revelation is totally unreliable. Um, and that the only thing we can say for certain about God and proclaim for certain about God in the pulpit is special revelation, is Christocentric, is grounded in scripture and in Jesus. And that we shouldn't try to be preaching natural revelation. And I'm curious to, to ask if, if that lack of dualism that you were talking about extends itself to freeing you to be able to preach about natural revelation. Oh, you bet. Who, who created the world? The word of God, right? Yeah. Jesus is the incarnation of, of the, of the word that, 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 uh, cast the world into being. So yeah, I, that wouldn't be, a um, 
a, a hurdle for me. It feels like a false choice. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I want to say like I, di- I, I didn't grow up in a tradition that it's not like my um, natural theological um, language. So th- the idea of like natural revelation and special revelation, like that, those aren't concepts that I uh, learned in my faith formation. And so, I mean, I read about them in seminary yeah. and appreciate them yes. and, and see how they, they work. But uh, it's not my um, uh, it's not my default. That's interesting. I would imagine the grass is always greener on the other side. <laughs> I, I, I would imagine that as much as I love my own tradition, that there would be a freedom in that and a freedom to look to experience and see as a preacher. I mean, certainly as a Christian, but as a preacher, a freedom to look to experience, read, hopefully, the presence of God out of it. And then bring it to people. Of course, Bart and Calvin would say, we're just talking about yourself in a loud voice, right? But, um, or, or yeah, like, I mean, Franciscans, Franciscans talk about the first book of creation. Sure. So in that sermon, you mentioned growing up in Memphis. Uh-huh. And later in it, you, or in the person that we heard, you mentioned growing up in a home that didn't, wasn't a church going home. Is that right? That's right. So how, what, how did you wind up here? In the um, pulpit. Um, long story short, uh, my grandparents, my dad's parents, were very committed Christians, Methodist Christians, and so they would take us to Christmas and Easter, vacation Bible school. My parents had a few kind of failed attempts at church. Uh, you know, a summer of religious devotion that, when summer was over, was done. Um, but my grandmother's uh, church had a great youth group, and so I sort of started hanging out with them in high school, went on some mission trips. So uh, the community of that youth group was wonderful. I didn't get um, kind of deep biblical or spiritual formation there, and so I, I left that youth group with a, a positive experience of Christian community but without much content. And so in college, um, I visited a campus ministry connected to the Methodist Church, the Wesley Foundation, because of that experience I had at the church in Memphis. And there, things changed radically. Um, I found a community of friends again, but I was also a freshman in college. I was coming out of the closet. Uh, I was figuring out who I was, all the things you do in your first, second year of college. And um, the church was a community, the church on campus was a community of deep, deep significance. And so through those relationships, through the worship there, and the, the campus pastor was a wonderful preacher and Bible study leader. So I read the Bible for the first time and on retreat had some experiences that I would come later to sort of experience, understand as justification, you know. And uh, in that first two years, left behind my 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 pre-med aspirations my parents for certain pre-med aspirations and began wondering if god was asking me to do something different and so i finished uh with an english degree switching from pre-med to english because i always loved to read and it was an easy way to get out of school on time and then anyway then i um took a job as a student organizer for a lgbtq church uh, movement that was happened to be headquartered in chicago and so I moved to Chicago for that for that internship, fell in love with the city, um, and during that time was kind of discern, trying to discern: do I want to do like uh, ministry in a parachurch organization, or be an activist, or be an agency head, or do I want to be a pastor? I don't know. But I, I was 21 and thought, well, it won't hurt to go to theology school. So I went to Emory and had a great great experience there, and 
in the midst of field ed, just felt like um, local church was where I wanted to be. Did you, in my ministry here at St. Paul's, I will, and, and over the years, but, but more particularly here at St. Paul's, I encounter a fair number of gay Christians who have had a torturous path mm. back to their faith because they did grow up in families that were active churchgoers and, and got beat up by their churches mm-hmm. as, as either kids who were coming into their own sexual orientation or after they came out of the closet and then sort of found their way painfully back to Christianity. It, it sounds as if it might have been graceful for you Graceful. To have not grown up in the church in that regard, oh, or at least yeah. in a church that was in, in, a, in a homophobic church, and to have not had to let go of a whole lot of mistruth before. Does it, That's right. I mean, to their credit, the church that I hung out with in high school was a church that was sort of moderate and never said anything bad about homosexuality. This was the early 90s. But yeah, I didn't have traumatizing experiences, or I didn't go to a church. I didn't have that experience. Some of my parishioners in Chicago have lived through experiences, survived experiences of being sent to reparative therapy and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, no, that wasn't my experience. Grace, graceful, I mean, I think luck is a theological category as well. And some, some would say, is it a meaningful one? But, you know, uh, for me, the church actually gave me the language to come out meaningfully. So like my experience at that Wesley Foundation, where I learned about, learned about God and Jesus Christ and all the essential doctrines of the church, the, that, those were the stepping stones you know, that I used to kind of um, dive into the tell of myself, you know? And so I was like, well, gosh, if, if, our, if incarnation is true, uh, if, if resurrection is true, well, you know, uh, maybe, maybe, there some, um, maybe there's some beauty in me, or maybe there's something, maybe there's a freedom that I'm being offered. Um, so it wasn't as if your faith life were in a separate category from mm-hmm. your sexual orientation, but the two were integrated right out As of much the as gate. they can be for a 19-year-old, but uh, yeah, they were. That's a, that's a beautiful story. Interestingly, in college, I feel like I broke out of that first child, like, I'm gonna, do, gonna fit the mold, do what the parents want to do. And when you decided not to Not to be a to doctor, not, and, and, and that I was gay, <laughs> you know? I came home, and told my parents, I, I, I'm a committed Christian, uh, I'm gay, and I think I might be being called to be a pastor. And my parents were you know, not thrilled with any of that, really, but particularly they were not thrilled with the idea of me being a pastor. <laughs> Did they have preconceptions about what that would mean for you, or was it based out of their own ambiguous I think it was, relationship? I, I think it was, it was less about the church as a, an institution. It was more about me not being a doctor. Um, you know, I come from a, a wonderful blue collar family, first kid to go to college kind of thing. So that whole narrative. And, uh, so uh, being a doctor was a visible sign of, of <laughs> sort of a class status and yeah, status and yes. being a preacher is not. Yeah. Uh, and my parents, um, those one of them they they, as individuals they would have been concerned about that in different ways Um, my mom and my dad are are very different but yeah that was probably a general generally um, a concern I want to talk to you a little bit about where you preach yeah and where you've preached so you start your first church was in England 
two little churches there and a circuit. We, the British Methodists have a circuit. So I was one of four pastors serving nine churches. So I had two churches that I was primarily responsible for pastorally, and I'd preach there sort of every other week, one church, one church. And then those other uh, seven churches, uh, I would make my way around the circuit to those, you know, once a month. Um, so I preached all over um, West Berkshire County and uh, North Hampshire County. What was that like as a formative experience when you look back on it to be preaching to different congregations with such frequency? I look back on it and think they were some of the most gracious people in the world to let some 24-year-old guy come in and tell them something about God. I mean, here I come in fresh from seminary. They're most... They were actually quite age diverse. One of them was much older, but one one congregation was much older. One congregation was quite age diverse, especially for British church. There were some folks in their 30s and 40s, which is quite young for British churches. But I was the youngest person in the congregation by far, probably by 10 years. They were so gracious. And I think I didn't, maybe because I had moved across the, the Atlantic, I didn't have that sense of, um, I know the truth about God. Maybe because I was sort of, a recent Christian, uh, committed Christian myself. I mean, I was only five or six years in sort of an active Christian commitment at that point. So, I mean, don't get me wrong, Matt. I had plenty of arrogance and egotism and still do, but uh, it wasn't as, um, it, it, I look back at the things I said then and the, I remember the way I felt in the pulpit and it, I didn't feel sort of bombastically uh, uh, truth telling, telling the truth from on high, kind of thing. So, Do you think part of that was because you were speaking to a different culture. So there's a natural sense of, I don't know the terrain, I don't, I don't yeah. know this world as well. You bet. Yeah, you bet. Um, Have those lessons stuck with? Do you feel like learning how to preach in that environment probably had a powerful effect on you as a preacher that'll endure? Uh, it, it, and I, I guess I haven't reflected on that too much. Um, yeah. So you met. And they were pretty. They're pretty. I mean, they're pretty crappy sermons. Uh, I, remember, I, I was reading through them. I have a stack of. I was reading through them, uh, cleaning out the drawers a couple of years ago, and they they were pretty, pretty not 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 very good. Uh, were they <laughs> the stereotype of, of of early preaching is that as a person tries to find their voice is that the preacher is either trying to say everything they learned in seminary or is very dry because you're full of abstract theological, you know, you get pumped full of abstract theological claims. And because those are important to seminaries, there's the assumption, oh, these must be important to churches. And and because they're important to you because you have to learn how to think theologically, therefore they must be important to the people in the pew. Did it? Yeah, I look at these sermons and they're like filled with bullet points, (laughs) theological bullet points that I was able to uh, uh, rapid fire spit out and and did, you know. And I and I love I love theology uh, and 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 particularly then I was fresh from reading it all the time. I don't read as I don't read academic theology as much anymore, but. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I love it. I loved it and love it. So, it was interesting to me, but probably not that interesting to them. I did the exact same thing as as when I first, and I've had similar experiences. But I I feel like I would preach these sermons about particular doctrinal <laughs> matters, and yeah. I look back on like you know the thirty senior citizens that I was speaking to, 
when I was fresh out of seminary and I was a little older than you when I got started, but I think the same thing, how gracious and patient and, and loving the, the congregation needs to be in order, to, I think, to bear with and form yeah. young preachers, at least this one. I would say the same thing for me. They ended up, a couple of the folks, the stewards from one of those congregations came over with his wife to my ordination in the U.S. Here. Yeah. So there was definitely a sense of, I think they, they, they experienced themselves to be grandparents or parents to me. And that was, that was just fine. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about being the pastor of a new church start, you're growing that church on, at some level, you can push back against this, but Mm -hmm. I assume on the strength of your own charisma, your gifts as a preacher, your ability to relate to people. And so you wind up with the congregation that, are they in the palm of your hand? Does it feel <laughs> like, do you, do you know what I'm trying to ask? I do, I do. I think that's, sure, I'm, I'm a charismatic guy. I have, I have some of those gifts. I think one of the things that we've tried to consciously do from the beginning of Urban Village to disrupt that kind of potential personality cult or echo chamber, as you call it, is there have, it's always been a team. So it started as the project of my friend Christian and I, who are very different preachers, and we would share the preaching. So I'd preach one week, he the next. And then as we've, you may, you may not know, Urban Village has sort of a multi-site strategy. And so we now have four clergy who are all uh, pastors of the whole church. And so as, as well as a pretty active teaching parish um, program. So I'm in the pulpit like one, two out of three Sundays, um, so, which, I, which I love. Uh, there's, there are other voices coming in. I don't want to underestimate the power of, of the charismatic pastor because that's certainly going on at Urban Village and probably is in, in any healthy church start. But um, I hope we're able to disrupt that a little bit. Through um, that model? Through do the you, model. Do you rotate sites then as a preacher, or are you at one of the sites We used to. For the first three years, two and a half years of Urban, in Urban Village, we, we rotated. So I would sort of travel around, sort of like that circuit in Britain. I would do it in Chicago. And then about two years ago, we were feeling like people were asking, who, who, is, my, who is my pastor? You know, I, I go to a church, they might say, in Andersonville or Wicker Park or downtown, and I see these three different preachers, but who 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 do I go to for pastoral care? Who's in who's in charge of this uh, this site? And so we now have more of a site pastor model. So, which is yours? Wicker Park. Wicker Park. Mm-hmm. Do you do you live there? I don't. I live downtown. Okay. Which is where the first site was when Chris and I planted Christian Kuhn, my uh, colleague and good friend. We planted Urban Village. The first site was downtown. And we really didn't know where the second site would be. So my partner, my, my husband, Jonathan, and I moved downtown and bought a place. So In uh, order to be close to the know, parish that you were that's serving. Right, that's right. And my husband, Jonathan, works in the west suburbs, so he wanted to be close to transit and all that stuff. Um, so I got Wicker sort of in, in the deal, like, you know, as you, as you, who's going to go where? And so Wicker, Wicker Park's just a couple blocks, a couple stops up on the blue line, so it's fine. My stereotype of Wicker Park would hold that you've got a lot of people who are coming to a new church, an urban village does such an excellent job of evangelizing and marketing itself as a progressive place, as a place that's going to line up with millennial 
and Gen X values. Are, are you then attracting people who have never been to church before? And are you, kind of, are you teaching people how to be Christian and to be the church? Or, or are you attracting lifelong churchgoers who, who walk through your doors? It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's both. I mean, in Chicago, most of the folks we get are folks who've had some contact with church before. Um, um, and, and then, but a small, a small and growing segment of folks who are totally new to Christianity or maybe were baptized as babies because they are, are part of Christendom, but never went to church. Um, and those folks come, um, the, the, the number, the, the largest percentage of those folks come to us through, uh, like 12 step programs. So folks who have discovered a spirituality outside of the church and are looking for a, a container, if you will. Um, so they've had an experience of higher power. Right. And, and, and life change, usually, you know, which is so nice. Those are great folks to do ministry with because they're actually often living the evangelical doctrines of the church in ways that many of the folks sitting in the pews for a long time haven't, you know, like haven't, they haven't tasted transformation, but these folks have. They just don't have a name for it. So... <laughs> In your ministry to people coming out of 12-step programs and discovering God in their own recovery, you mentioned in one of the sermons I listened to, I thought you mentioned your own experience in recovery. That's you right. alluded to it. Is that... That's right. I'm, um, a, I'm a recovering alcoholic. How does that affect your preaching? Um, it, it makes me feel uh, a lot better about not having it all together. Uh... I feel less, I mean, I still feel extremely responsible for what I say, obviously, but um, AA is really big on surrender to God. And I, I, I feel like that's, obviously most Christians would say that. Like Christians are big on surrendering to God's will, right? The whole Lord's Prayer thing. But I never learned to practice that, really. I mean, I, I learned to practice it. I, I could talk about it theologically, but I, I didn't have an, exp what does it feel like to surrender yourself to God? And so, in the preaching moment, um, I mean, I have my work to do, but at, at the end of the day, if I show up faithfully and surrender, then God will God will take care of God's God's part of that, right? So, has it allowed you to enter the pulpit with less trepidation? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I still, I mean, when I first started preaching. I would throw up every Sunday morning. Really? Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. Like not meta the, not metaphorically. Not metaphorically, and not probably not every Sunday morning. But and then over time, that became just a sort of a stomach ache, and you know. But I still have a every Sunday morning. I still have a there's a a, a little uneasiness, which I I used to think was sort of an anxiety disorder, and um, but now I, I in, in my current experience of it, it feels more like a, a reminder. Uh, that I'm not in charge. Uh, that, that that something holy could happen. Uh, it might. It might. It might not. And that that it happens or not is not dependent on whether how good I am or how effective I am. Though God's able to use whatever I try. You know. So like, it's just a reminder of again my smallness, um, but connectedness to God. So through your recovery, you've learned in daily life and in a, in the broad scope of your life to recognize the grandeur of God, the power of God, God's role in your dependence on grace. You bet. And then that's stretched into the pulpit. You put that in practice. I mean, I'm sure in other areas of your life too, but in the pulpit. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's so wonderful about AA, in my experience of it, and uh, 
is that folks, uh, I've, I've been deeply moved by some writers in the past 15 years in the church who talk about recovering testimony as a, as, as a Christian practice, both, both uh, for lay folks and testimony in preaching. You know, Tom Long, Lillian Daniel, wonderful stuff. And uh, when I go to A meetings, and I still go, you know, a couple, three, four times a week, uh, you get to hear people tell, tell testimony over and over again without notes. You know, I mean, sometimes people have thought through what they're going to say, but often it's just like uh, they stand up and just tell their story or what's happening. And so it's, and the, the experience I feel in AA is, like, one of the reasons I go to AA is because it's a place where I'm not in charge. Like, I, I don't have to say anything meaningful. Like, I can just sit there and be a sinner among sinners, you know, uh, a drunk among drunks. And I'm, I'm, there's an equality there. I don't experience that in the church in the same way because I just have responsibility. It's my job to, uh, in some sense, stage manage the thing, right? You know, uh, and even if I wish that it weren't that, that way, I mean, people bring all kinds of, we know this, right? People bring all kinds of... Uh, uh, expectations that they project on you and you can't control that and that's part of the job is to say here I am I offer myself for you to do that as your that's, screen that's right that's right you know, in, in part but in, a, but in a I don't have to do that do you find yourself in meetings like the your pastoral care instincts being pulled at or are you able to I yeah I, I don't I mean I don't have a strong um, spiritual gift of uh of mer- that's not my spiritual like, mercy i would never be a chaplain or a pastoral care like that's I, I think i do it adequately and compassionately but but you don't want to run across the room and no care for no people. no in that setting i mean i'm sure you do at church on sunday morning yeah, sometimes um, do you feel like you have a persona that you bring to the pulpit that you inhabit when you when you preach that's um I think everyone has to have some sort of persona because you, it's it's not normal to talk to people for 20 or 30 minutes. Like no one does that. And so you have to develop a voice or a, a character or whatever to do that over and over again. So yes, um, this is something I really struggled a lot with when I was a younger preacher. I mean, I wanted to be a preacher like, you know, fill in the blank. Barbara Brown Taylor, or like Fred Craddock, who's my preaching hero, or I wanted to be, you know, listen to Jeremiah Wright preach and just think, God, I wish I could have that kind of power. Um, and I think it's totally fine to learn um, the basic structures or uh, by by studying the masters, right? By imitation. By and... imitation, yeah. Um, but there comes a crisis. There came a crisis for me, at least, when I realized. I, I, oh God, I'm, I'm not Barbara Brown Taylor. I'm I'm not Fred Craddock. I'm certainly not uh, Jeremiah Wright. And so, you know, when I, I remember being a young preacher, even the first two or three years, and like trying to make my voice sound like something that I thought a preacher should sound like. And In terms of its tone? Both the tone and the um, gravity of my prose and the cadence of my delivery and uh, it always sound and sometimes people really liked it but it always felt and I wasn't I don't know if I would have said this this then but it always felt like mannered to me and I um, and there, we could talk all about like appropriating 
different traditions, styles, and in ways that are not uh, okay, right, or are potentially uh, privileged or racist, right? Like it's always interesting to hear a white person try to preach like, like. one stream in the African American tradition, right? I yes. mean, there are several streams within the African American tradition, but. And so, but I remember trying, like, I'm, I'm going to preach powerfully, you know, and and I and saw, use those same rhetorical devices, yeah, and and, and use the kind of extreme um, volume and um, intonation differences, and I just it just sounded fake in our sats and like counterfeit, and uh, even though it was Eric Lott has this book called about minstrelsy called Love and Theft, oh yeah, and he says. He's condemning minstrelsy, of course, but he says we need to recognize that it begins out of a love and then it becomes an act of theft. Huh. Um, which I thought was really, it's, it's a great idea, th- that notion. But, but for you, as you tried that style on, even though it was effective, to, it felt artificial to you? It did, yeah. long, long term. Yeah. And so as a, I developed, I was trying to like, what is my own voice? You know, what is my own persona? And, uh, I remember I was talking with my senior pastor in Glenview, and who's a wonderful woman, and um, I was like, I think I'm discovering my voice. And she's like, what do you, you, know, what do you think your voice is? I was like, that, that's it. I think it's, it's, it has to do with being gay and like preaching like, as, a, as a gay person. And, and, and I know sort of the, there's been a lot of studies about what makes a gay voice a gay voice, mm-hmm. and it, uh, which is... There's all kinds of stereotypical stuff and gendered stuff, and but I realized that like one of the things I was worried about, even though I'd come out of the closet, was like as I'd hear myself preach, like sounding gay, and uh, you know, uh, sort of treading on uh, potentially triggering territory here, right? I mean, obviously, gay people can sound a lot of different ways, right? Of course, uh, but uh, there was actually a piece in the New York Times today about the gay voice and why. Uh, why uh, uh, people sound the way they do. And so there was all this stuff about gay men being primarily raised by women. And so I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sort of uh, affirming the science of that study. It was just interesting. So I was just thinking about how do I sound? And uh, I tend to be in the, my persona is I tend to be a, a pretty quick talker. Uh, I stumble a little bit in my delivery it's sort of scattershot and and all over the place. It's not it's not it's not controlled at all. And I think that's that's pretty much how I talk in general. Like a sort of sort of mumbly a little bit. And, and I, I think I realized uh, some years later, like oh this is this is this is it's like it's like how I talk and when I'm not preaching. But there is a persona there. It's an expanded version of yeah, the self. Yeah, a little larger. Someone say a larger version of the self. So even as you were trying on. A black style, right? Only pulpit. a couple times, <laughs> but, but you were at the same time doing that. If I hear you correctly, in order to perhaps maybe suppress is too strong a word, but but hold back your own. It wasn't that you had no voice. It was that if you were going to preach in a gay voice, you were worried about that. It it felt. Yeah. I guess it was it was about it wasn't like oh I don't want to be gay I'll I'll try to preach black it was like that was one of the uh, voices I would try you know I uh, think any white preacher of our era who grew up listening to hip hop 
hearing great African-American yeah. preachers is unavoidably going to do sure. what you're talking about. Sure. You're, you're good to be honest about it. Ah, I've done the same thing. And it and, and it's a little embarrassing to think about. It is embarrassing. Yeah. But I also think it is... Um, there's a respect to it. I was thinking about this in terms of... Um, and again, we can, t- we can pull this out later, but... I forget. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. The this woman, Rachel Dolezal. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, um, when you think about, I mean, clearly, she's, the woman's a goofball, and <laughs> and and was in in the end, obviously, like appropriating another culture in order to promote yourself. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's really screwed up. But there's also something kind of admirable about it. Like like at some point, that woman woke up and was like, I cannot stand to be a white person. Right, right, right. <laughs> and that's, ad, that's ad, now the way it plays out is absolutely insane. But that's a, the impulse is admirable. Sure. And I guess that's what I'm saying. Like, of course, for myself at least, of course, at some point in my life as a preacher, I'm going to want to get up there and sound like an African-American preacher or what I think an African-American preacher sounds like or some of the African-American preachers I've heard because they're the best preachers I've ever heard. Sure. Um, and we could talk, it'd be interesting to sort of talk about what whiteness does as a as a sort of, uh, as, an, as an engine, what that does to Anglo preaching voices. You know, I mean, that's a whole different thing, right? Yeah. I mean... I, I, we went to a rally for Martin Luther King Day and uh, just this year and Otis Moss was preaching and he just preached preached this I mean he, he had five minutes at the end of the rally and just like did in five minutes with what I couldn't do you know it was just so beautiful and I remember <laughs> my parishioners who whom I adore and who who love me I remember one of them looking at looking at me and saying that was so powerful. And what I, what she was saying to me is like, why don't you preach that way? <laughs> she didn't say it, but I knew she was saying it. Maybe that was my own paranoia. Yeah. But um, so... Are you a manuscript preacher? Um, no. I mean, I have I have some notes there. Sometimes the, no, the notes are... Um, it, just, it depends on the week. I, I, I do usually write out probably 75% of the sermon. Um and sometimes that whole thing is there. Sometimes I just sort of tell the story, right? Uh, I'll have a note, tell the story. But uh, I don't, I, so, but I practice. I practice this, this sermon. Um, Where do you do that? In, in my study at home, uh, in front of a mirror, in the bathroom, you know. Um, but how, it's funny, when I practice at home, it is never, it's, it's not like that. So something, it's more, um, not flat, but it's, it's more stable. But in the pulpit, that fast, er, sort of quasi-erratic thing uh, emerges. Becomes more pronounced. Yeah. And I, I, I've grown to sort of, uh, so I don't prepare for it. Like I don't make notes. Some preachers make like all kinds of like musical notations in their text, right? Like I, I don't know what they would look like, but accent marks or whatever. I don't do that. You don't write the word pause. No, I do not. Yeah, I've seen. I know people do that. I don't. Um, so, but the timbre of my voice changes in in the pulpit in ways that it, I don't experience in my study or in the bathroom mirror. It becomes more alive. I hope so. Probably because you're in the middle of a dialogue at that point. Right, right. And you're not in your bathroom. Well, with yourself in the mirror, perhaps. But 
Holy Covenant, the church that I served before I started Urban Village, we went from one service to two services while I was the pastor there. And at that point in my preaching, for whatever reason, I don't know why, it felt like the second service I was more warmed up and more in the sermon. And so it maybe it sometimes felt a little more connected, a little more effective. These days, for whatever reason, I often experience the first sermon to be more connected and the second sermon, oh, fine, but not as, and I don't know if because I'm... Is it less fresh for you Yeah, at maybe point? so. Maybe so, or I'm bored with myself or, you know, I've heard it, I've heard it before, you know. So even even though I'm the one who's delivering it, I've are already heard it. Are the congregations different? Or is they it, are different, are different they, congregations. How so? Uh, it's one younger, older... Oh, I see what you're saying. Demographically, demographically they're not different. They're yeah. just different people, you know. I so, find here, we have two services here, and our early service is concurrent with our Sunday school, and it's comprised almost entirely of, of people with children. And our second service is everybody in the congregation who doesn't have a kid. Pretty much. Okay. There's, I mean, not to discount the wonderful people who, who break those <laughs> norms, but for the most part, that's true. So it's a very different group of people. Uh, you know, they have di- there are different points in their life. They have different concerns. The second service is more diverse. It's, it's the older people, younger people without kids. And the room is just so different. It'll feel... I've, I run into the same thing. I get bored yeah. with my material the second time around. But... But the response is always different. People will laugh at things at one service and won't at the mm-hmm. next. They'll lean in to a sermon and they won't at the second one or they will at the second one and they won't at the first. It's really helped me understand the the way that we need to rely on the Holy Spirit, but also the way that the Spirit is not reliable. <laughs> <laughs> dependent, dependent. Exactly. Somewhat. Exactly. Yeah. There or not there. Do you find yourself over the course of your normal day, week, thinking... At a conscious level, oh, this would be good for a sermon. This would be something to include. Is everything grist for the mill? Of course I find myself thinking that way. Yeah. 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 I, I, uh, I think anyone who says they they aren't is lying. Okay. Right? Any preacher, Any who, says preacher who says they're not. Um, and so maybe, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I remember going to preaching class, and one of the things that stuck with me was, um, I think it was a TA, and I've passed this on to preachers, is to carry a journal with you and just to write, notice notice life, you know, write things down. And um, so I, I've always tried to do that. Uh, and, and it's become, it's not just for sermonic fodder. It's just, I want to pay attention, you know? And so if something beautiful happens or something unexpected on the train that strikes me, I mean, a fragment, you know, it's not like a full story. I'll, I'll just note it, you know? Um, so it doesn't, create an artificial barrier between you and your experience which is my fear and I think my mom's assumption but rather it's leading you into a deeper engagement with that's, that's the hope I mean it, there's been a lot said about millennials like collecting experiences right like I mean I, I think it's I, I hope it's more than just collecting little little experiences but a, a sort of a sacramental practice mm-hmm. you know a woman on the train with uh, I remember I mean, th- these are things that I've used in sermons, so these are the things I remember. But I remember being on a uh, train once in Chicago. We, you've been on a train in Chicago and the smell of the train. And I remember a woman, like, opening um, uh, a tube of, like, uh, lavender uh, hand lotion. And she put it on. 
and I can remember the way her hand sounded and I can remember this, the lavender smell sort of permeating the train and just being so grateful for that. You know, it's like that, well, that, that, that got woven into a sermon at some point, but in the moment I was like, this is, you know, thank you, God, you know, a beautiful, a moment. beautiful moment, you know? So, so you're more attentive to those moments. I try to be. Do you, how do you think your spiritual life would be different if you weren't a preacher? I don't know how to answer that question because yeah. I'm a preacher. So it's hard to conceive. Yeah. Of. It's like, it's so like when someone says, I just don't know the older I get, the more I, I think it's impossible to even imagine being in someone else's shoes. You know, I mean, it, it's maybe it's not a bad thought exercise, but I, I have no idea what it's like to be a woman or a black person or a straight person other than hearing your testimony as a straight person or a black woman or a, a woman. But, um, so I have no idea what it's like to not be a preacher. To be a Christian and not be a preacher too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause those fall that followed very quickly for me. I mean, I was a Christian and, and then shortly after. I so you were a experiencing a call into Christianity really simultaneously with a call to be a preacher, at least to be a minister of the, in some sort of full time way. Uh, I wasn't sure it was preacher at that point, but quickly. Yeah. I've thought sometimes that when I look out at the faithful folk who show up week in and week out, if I weren't charged with this responsibility or that's a grand way of saying if this weren't my job yeah. if i weren't paid to be here would i have the the faithfulness to worship that mm. my parishioners have it's very inspiring to see people yeah dedicate themselves to church going i love that question i mean you don't know right but you ask the question yeah and uh which is a sign of that you're noticing things, right? That you're kind of yeah. I love that. Um, I hope I hope so. God, I hope so. But I don't know. <laughs> I think I've always been. I mean, that story we started with. I think I've always been a spiritual kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, for a while, a spiritual but not religious kid. Yeah. But a kid that was taken with myself and inappropriate ways as an eight year old, and and the immense beyond of everything else and that and being a preacher has allowed you to to delve deeply into that aspect of yourself and outwardly mm. into the grandeur that you experience and, and being a Christian has given you language to express it mm. through a container to hold it in but that essential part of who you are is going to be who you are regardless of mm. your profession I would assume I hope so <laughs> yeah. Trey thank you so much for sitting down with me and for 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 uh, engaging so openly with this conversation it's been it's been my great joy thank you for the invitation thank you yeah many thanks for listening to the christian centuries preachers on preaching podcast this episode was edited by neil ellingson with technical assistance from kyle hoker and steve thorngate